Alrighty. So today we will be looking at the flood account, which is in Genesis chapter 6. Uh, three points today. Uh, first one is salvation. Second, atonement. And the third and final point of this sermon is blessing and curse. So as you turn uh, all the way to the front of your Bibles... Um, to Genesis 6 this morning. There are a couple things I'd like to mention uh, at the outset. First is that the intention of, of this sermon, as I hope you'll come to see, is to look at Noah and the flood um, through a different lens, a, a Christ-focused lens, if you will. In other words, how does Noah point us to Christ and our need for him? Is this really more than just about a story of an ark and a flood? We know and perhaps have even said it before ourselves, the saying that all of the Bible is about Jesus. And I would agree that the Bible from beginning to end is a story about Christ. It's the unfolding of God's redemptive plans through his son, the only redeemer and mediator between God and man. It shouldn't be our goal in Bible study, nor uh, the preacher's goal in preaching to try and inorganically fit Jesus into every obscure uh, passage or verse, but instead take those verses and passages in their immediate historical and biblical contexts and pull or extract from them their meaning, but also how they either point to Christ, as we see in the Old Testament, or Look back uh, to Christ and his finished work, what he's already accomplished as we read in the New Testament. And so we come to these passages of Noah's Ark and the flood, uh, which we can sometimes read through casually without seeing the the types and shadows uh, permeating throughout. What do I mean by by types and shadows? Biblically speaking, a type is an example or a symbol or a picture uh, that God intentionally designed to take place in order to point forward to an event or person that would come later, uh, that would be the ultimate fulfillment of that type. The book of Hebrews, for, for instance, if you read through it, it's filled with those examples of types um, and the fulfillments of those types. Animal sacrifices, Uh, pointing forward to Christ, the Lamb of God, the final and ultimate sacrifice. Or the Old Testament priests, which pointed forward to Christ, the true and final high priest of his people. Or even just the concept of of mediators and prophets and priests and kings in general. The idea of shadows is similar. Um, And these go hand in hand, types and shadows in, in the Old Testament. And what it means, put simply, is that these things that God intended to take place throughout redemptive history that would point forward to Jesus were, as more than one theologian has put it, like a room filled with furniture that is dimly or hardly lit. The furniture is there, and you know it's there if you bump around with arms outstretched, but it isn't until the lights are turned on that you see clearly. And that is what Christ does. He is, of course, the light of the world. 
the very substance and fulfillment of all these shadowy Old Testament prophecies and gospel proclamations. The second thing in regards to this sermon in particular uh, I wanted to mention is that we'll, in one sense, be gliding over, um, over these three chapters worth of content. I've got about 40 minutes or so to work with, so we're not going to hit everything. Um, but my hope this morning is to look at Genesis chapter 6 while also focusing on Genesis 8, verse 20, to Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. And with the intention of seeing these events as more than just about a guy who builds uh, a giant ark and survives a flood with his family and some animals, but specifically how Noah is a type of second Adam and thereby points us to Christ. For the sake of context, let's set the stage here a bit um, before jumping in just to get an understanding of what we'll be looking at. Noah and the flood do not immediately follow uh, Adam and the creation account. Um, It may seem like that. It may be easy to think that as we're only six chapters into Genesis. But from Adam to Noah, there spans a time of roughly 1,600 years, which we gather mostly from the genealogies we read of in chapter 5 of Genesis. Um, Throughout those years, there's, of course, a multiplying uh, human population, and with that necessarily came a multiplying of human sin and the devastating effects upon creation. That's not to say that population growth itself is bad, um, which is an interpretation that some mistakenly take, We'll see why more so in next week's sermon. But whereas before the fall, God looked upon creation and saw that it was good and very good. Now he looks upon it in chapter six, verse five, and says that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now note the strength and weight of the language used in this verse in describing the depraved and corrupt state of mankind after the fall. Not simply their actions, but every intention of man's heart was not sometimes evil or even mostly evil, but only evil continually. The God who created them was the furthest thing from their minds. They were, as Christ says in the Gospels, eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage before the flood came, just living life to the fullest, uh, enjoying the world and all its pleasures without a care for anything, least of all the God who graciously gave to them life and breath and everything. And so it is against this backdrop that we read of God's decree of judgment. His patience and long-suffering had lasted long enough. These things had come to a breaking point, and justice was, was coming. But that then begged the question, what about God's promise to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, that their offspring, the seed of the woman, would bruise the head of the serpent while having his own heel bruised in the process? That clearly hadn't happened at this point in human history yet, so if God was to wipe out all of mankind, then his promise would be broken and the serpent would have won. 
But of course, that couldn't be so, for God is a promise keeper. And in his infinite wisdom, he makes a way for a godly remnant to be preserved, chosen graciously by himself for the continuation of his promise and to display his glory in judgment and mercy. So let's begin here by reading Genesis 6 and and get into our first point of salvation. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, And the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into the in to you to keep them alive. <clears throat> and also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Now the first point, uh, salvation. So from the very beginning of chapter 6, we see clearly what has Uh, provoked God's holy wrath and necessitated his judgment. Mankind's sin was a disgusting stench to our holy God, even as it is today. God, as the sovereign creator and king, intended to do what he had every right to do, 
which was to punish wickedness and the rebel creatures who, who lived in wickedness. Yet, as we've said, in the midst of all this, God did not forget his gracious covenant uh, to his first image bearers about the promised offspring who would one day come and conquer the serpent. And so he sets his favor and grace upon Noah, who was providentially a descendant uh, of the believing line of Seth, the son of Adam, as opposed to the unbelieving line of Cain. Though we read Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, this does not mean that God favored him because of his righteousness. Rather, we read of God favoring Noah by grace without any mention of merit prior to learning of Noah's righteous character, which was not sinless, but it was upright uh, and holy in the midst of a godless and corrupt generation. In fact, we could say Noah was righteous and blameless because he had been specially favored by God already. We read here not why God chose Noah, but simply that God chose him. Noah was saved by faith alone in the Lord Jesus alone, like any saint in human history. We read, for instance, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, that by faith Noah entered the ark for the saving of his house, and he became an heir of the righteousness that is by faith. It wasn't his righteousness that would spare him from the devastating flood, but it was the ark. And one of the things this signified was that his salvation was completely outside of himself, dependent on a righteousness that was not his own. He was a sinner and worthy of perishing, just like everyone else, an ordinary man in need of mercy. Now, another key to understanding this text and how it relates to salvation is, is seeing that it is covenantal. A covenant can simply be defined as a formal agreement that creates a relationship with legal aspects, with promises or stipulations tied to it. It's the primary way we see God uh, relating to his people throughout redemptive history, and we see that here with Noah in particular. God covenants with Noah in verse 18, saying, I will establish my covenant with you. But in and through that relationship, others would be brought in to experience the benefits of that covenant relationship as well. God says that he will establish his covenant with Noah, and he shall come into the ark with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives with him. Then, of course, not only his family, but two of every sort of other living creatures. So in this regard, Noah acts as a representative head of his family. But in a broader sense, since the rest of humanity will be destroyed in the flood, Noah acts as a type of representative head for all of mankind. Now this concept of of one person representing others, either by their faith or their failures, their righteousness or their sin, is seen throughout Scripture um, and is closely tied and connected with the covenants that God makes, not just with man, but with the Son of Man. But 
Noah, as we've said, only acts as a type here, since he was neither the first Adam nor the last Adam. For the true or second, uh, true second or last Adam that we read of in Scripture is, of course, Jesus Christ, the representative head of the new creation, uh, the people he has redeemed. This is what Paul expands upon in Romans 5, namely that every human is either identified with Adam or with Christ. Uh, there's, there's no in-between. Adam was the first man, but because of his fall into sin, death and condemnation has spread to all humanity, and all are born in sin, born under the wrath of God, born as breakers of God's holy law. Conversely, with Christ, the second or last Adam, all who are united to him by faith receive justification and life, freed from sin's dominion and brought into the family of God. And so with Noah, we get a shadowy picture of God dealing with one man in particular and yet including many in the benefits of that covenant to graciously save. Where Adam failed to obey God in the garden, we read that Noah obeyed all that God commanded him. But not in the sense of perfect obedience, but rather in the context of building the ark and gathering his household into it. Noah believes God's word, and from that faith, he builds the ark that would save himself and his offspring from the coming flood. Those he represents get spared in the flood, and on account of his faith and righteousness, not their own. This points us to Christ, the true second Adam, who obeys God perfectly in all things and in all ways, with such obedience reaching its climax at the cross, where he would lay down his life to bear the wrath of God against sinful man. We who are in Christ are united to him by faith, are spared on account of his obedience, not in anything we do. We have no merit to offer to God. It's all of grace from beginning to end. And if we have trusted in Christ, though we still sin in this life, we have been declared just and righteous on account of the perfect life of Jesus. So additionally, we see in these verses how the means of salvation from the flood point us to the means of salvation in Jesus from God's wrath. Christ builds not a literal ark, but rather a spiritual one. He builds the church, and in that invisible church dwells all of the elect people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. These who are in the invisible church are saved from the flood of God's wrath against all sin. Just as all who are outside of the ark perish in the flood in Noah's day, so too all who are outside of Christ and his invisible church perish eternally under God's wrath. Those in Noah's day mocked him and as he spent about 120 years building the ark, they ignored his repeated exhortations to repent and believe. He knew what was coming on account of mankind's sin against the Lord, and he continued to warn and exhort despite the fact that things didn't look 
all that concerning year after year, day after day. And in those years, the people scoffed, scoffed and made fun of Noah. See, God is not going to intervene. Where's this flood that you speak of? And so too Christ called people to repent and believe the gospel, and he too was rejected and despised, even sentenced to death. And the same has been true since and even today. Countless multitudes are eating and drinking and just living life to the fullest, uh, being married and given in marriage, while ignoring the good news of salvation through Christ alone. And sadly, there will come a day when it'll be too late to change their mind, just as it was in Noah's day, when the ark, the door of the ark was closed and the rain began to pour. As in the days of Noah, there is only one way to escape God's judgment. As it was then and is today, salvation comes through none other than Jesus Christ alone. And I urge you, do not neglect a free gift such as this. And marvel that God welcomes rebels like us to receive his pardon. Abandon all other vain hope and trust. Make no attempt to try and enter into the ark in any other way besides the way that the Lord has made. By faith alone, we must go into the ark of the Savior For it is there and there alone we will find refuge from the judgment to come. Now secondly, the second point I want to make is that of atonement this morning. So as we jump ahead uh, real quick over chapter 7 to chapter 8 verse 20, we read of what Noah does upon exiting the ark for the first time in over 150 days. Now, just put yourself in the shoes of Noah or the sandals of Noah for a moment and just imagine being stuffed in an ark with your family and countless animals with limited access to fresh air uh, for 150 days. You exit the ark uh, when the flood waters subside, the same waters which just destroyed most of uh, the world, every living thing, and left the earth the, the landscape of the earth desolate and barren. Your equilibrium is probably all jacked up, probably not feeling too good. Um, wouldn't you be overwhelmed in that moment by what needed to get done to repair things? That would be a reasonable reaction, at least for me, as my first reaction to most circumstances is, what do I need to do? And yet we see that these things were not first and foremost on Noah's mind. Rather, he could not help but offer a sacrifice to the Lord, not to persuade or appease him, but to praise and give thanks to him alone. Noah was a receiver of mercy, and so he was rightfully a giver of thanks. Gratitude is the proper response when one is delivered from calamity. And it provides the motivation for joyful obedience. We, if we have trusted in the Lord like Noah did, have been delivered from the greatest calamity and the greatest judgment in and through the finished work of Jesus. 
And so our lives should be marked by obedience to the Lord, motivated by gratitude and a desire to please and honor our Savior. Like Noah, we do not obey for life, but from the life we've already received, having been delivered and spared by our gracious King. Yet so often this isn't the case in our daily experience. Two things I've observed in my own life is that I either fail to remember what God has done for me in the gospel and let my circumstances and trials drive my heart and actions, leading to bitterness or discontentment, which is the very opposite of gratitude. Or two, I I forget who I am in Christ positionally. And I foolishly think I need to earn my place before God through what I do or don't do. We were saved by grace like Noah was, but think we need to work and strive in in order to stay in God's favor, which is very unlike what Noah did. Or maybe you're neither of those and and you're just the opposite, prone to abuse God's grace and do nothing in light of what God has done for you. But in either of these cases, we often find ourselves in, we are forgetting who God is and who we are before him. And so our days become full of anxious toil rather than restful and joyful and grateful obedience to our loving Father. In this particular instance, Noah shows us how to respond to God's grace with gratitude. We read in verse 20 that Noah built an altar to the Lord, taking some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of his heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Now there is much to note in these couple verses, but I want to stick with how Noah points us to Christ in offering up this sacrifice. So interestingly, this is the first time in the Bible uh, that we read of an altar being built and a sacrifice being made on it. Um, At the beginning of chapter 7, we see that God commanded Noah to bring into the ark um, extra pairs of clean animals, which he now uses for the offerings. Now, such an act upon exiting the ark in one sense sets the stage for the sacrificial system that God would institute and distinguish among his people, uh, not only as a means for expressing gratitude and goodwill, but also to show their need for atonement. We read that the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, which is language we see throughout the Old Covenant when burnt offerings were made and accepted by God. When we do read such things, it's good to remember that the Lord is a spirit and therefore does not have a literal nose to smell with, Rather, it's language, anthropomorphic language, simply used to better convey what's going on here and how God is condescending to relate to his people, his creatures. 
So the aroma that God smells is probably not all that pleasant in and of itself to Noah, but the posture of Noah's heart, which is full of faith and gratitude, is what pleases the Lord. Noah, whose very name in Hebrew means rest, is closely tied to the Hebrew word for pleasing or comfort. His actions here correspond with his name as he pleases the Lord and soothes his wrath against sinful man. Now, such language should sound a bit familiar. Um, Where the first Adam failed and thus brought the need for atonement into the world, Noah here acts again as a type of second Adam who would give true and lasting rest, full and final appeasement of God's wrath through sacrifice. Now, of course, Noah could not do this himself since he was a sinner. He needed his own sin atoned for. And yet he points forward to Jesus, the sinless one who pleased the Father in his life and his death. As we read the Apostle Paul's words in Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2, that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Noah's sacrifice of the clean animals only provides a temporary soothing of God's righteous wrath. But Christ becomes the ultimate fulfillment as he offers himself on the altar as the spotless lamb who not only takes the guilt and penalty of our sin upon himself, but appeases and satisfies God's wrath in full and turns it to favor for his people. Now, it is this aspect that is closely tied, uh, closely connected with our third point. We'll look at, these, uh, we'll look at this morning um, on these same verses, blessing and curse. As we just read, God smells the pleasing aroma of Noah's sacrifice and says in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, some of this will come up again next week um, as we look at more specifically the nature of God's covenant with Noah here and into chapter 9. But again, the focus of today's sermon is, is on Noah as a type of second Adam or last Adam. So to work backwards a bit here, let's begin with the blessing that God bestows upon Noah in chapter 9, verse 1. So again, these words may sound familiar since the last time they were spoken were to Adam at creation. The command from God to man to be fruitful and multiply is in itself a blessing. It is what God intended for his creation to be teeming with life. And such life only comes from God who graciously gives it and sustains it. More on that next week, however, but going back to 
a few verses before, we see that in response to Noah's sacrifice, God begins to lay out the foundation of the covenant he promised to establish with him back in chapter 6. God promises to never curse the ground again because of man. Despite the fact that man's evil heart and sin would continue on even after the flood. The backdrop of this came back in Genesis 3 where God pronounces his judgment upon Adam for his disobedience, which included this. Cursed is the ground because of you. The curse of sin had spread to all of creation after the fall, not just man. And so we see the decay and disorder all around us, um, that things aren't the way they were meant to be. Uh, Things are broken. Things are wrong. Even the best and most beautiful that this earth provides comes with thorns. And sin is the reason while man remains the culprit. And things certainly weren't looking too great after God had brought the flood. The world wasn't exactly picturesque at the time. But God in his grace promises to never bring such a flood again but to sustain the created order under his sovereign hand. And so Noah points to Christ, the true and last Adam in this regard, that his obedience and sacrifice please the Lord and lead to a promise that such judgment would not be repeated again. Now, as we've said a couple times, uh, types aren't the true thing, but only point forward to them. And here we have a particular curse, the curse of judgment by way of flood, being checked or halted or curbed, whereas Christ accomplishes a full curse reversal through his life, death, and resurrection. Christ himself becomes a curse on the cross and thereby redeems us from the curse. The judgment that he bore cannot be again poured out on those for whom he died, for God is just. As one hymn beautifully portrays this truth, declaring payment God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand, and then again at mine. In other words, it would be unjust for God to demand payment twice, when it's already been paid in full. And so we know with confidence in our promise-keeping God that judgment will never come upon those who believe in the Lord Jesus. Christ's work as second Adam and mediator also inaugurates the new creation, which has already begun in his people that he's redeemed, bringing us from spiritual death to spiritual life. By grace through faith. Man as image bearer was obviously still corrupted after the flaw after the flood, but Christ is the curse reverser, the creator and the recreator, in that he restores the image of God in us through the sanctification of his spirit. In other words, in sanctification, we're conformed into the image of Christ, but we're 
our, the image of God in us is being restored to what it was originally intended to be. And yet, even still, things are not now what they will one day be. Creation itself still groans under the corruptive consequences of Adam's sin. But praise the Lord, the second Adam has come and accomplished redemption. And by his spirit, he is applying that redemption to all of his beloved until the day when he returns in glory. Therefore, we can rejoice for the king has come. And as we'll sing, I'm sure, in the coming weeks, that famous Christmas hymn, which declares, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He, Christ, comes to make his blessing flow, far as the curse is found. One of the things as I was preparing for this sermon, um, and just reading through this account, while simultaneously reading through um, one of my favorite books, The Lord of the Rings, as some of you know, I'm a big Lord of the Rings nerd. Um, but in the last book, it's, it's fittingly titled The Return of the King. And it's hard as a Christian to read these books and not think of the biblical connections throughout. But towards the end of the book, um, a great evil has been uh, defeated, conquered, rid from the world. And one of the characters, Sam, says to another character, Gandalf, is everything sad going to come untrue? And then Tolkien writes, Gandalf responds, he says, a great shadow has departed. And Tolkien writes that Gandalf laughs. And the sound of his laughter was like music, like water in a parched land where it had never been truly before. And that is very much what Christ is going to say when he comes again. He's going to say, behold, I will make all things new. But for those who have not repented of their sin and trusted in him, this broken world is the best that they'll experience. For rather than trusting in the Savior who bore the curse, they will have chosen to bear it themselves for the rest of eternity. Now, it's my prayer that if you are in that very position right now, that you see your need for the Lord Jesus to save you. And I promise that he's never once rejected a sinner who sought him truly by faith. Now to my fellow believers, I would encourage you, myself, to, to read about Noah in this historical event and marvel that God orchestrated events in the past to point forward to the Messiah that he would one day provide, that he has provided in Christ. Let us marvel that God saves sinners, that he is the promise keeper who provides the means and the ends of salvation through Christ, his Son, in whom alone we are safe and secure, not only from the storms of this fallen life, but also the storm of God's wrath to come. With grateful hearts, let us, like Noah, respond to the Lord's grace 
in praise and thanksgiving, offering ourselves as living sacrifices before him as we look forward to the day when all wrongs will be made right. So next week, Lord willing, we'll be looking at the first 17 verses of chapter 9 and explore again more deeply this covenant uh, that God makes with Noah, but also what it means for us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful, Lord, that you have revealed yourself to us, your people, through your word. That you reveal from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, that all of the Bible is about this glorious redemption that unfolds throughout human history and culminates in Christ's life, death, and resurrection for sinners. We're thankful, Lord, um, for this passage in particular, um, that Noah was not just a guy who builds an ark, but you orchestrated it so that it points us to Christ and the salvation that we have in him from the flood of your wrath against sin. Lord, we pray that you would help us to rejoice more fully in the salvation, the atonement, the blessing that you have provided in Christ. Lord, help us to see our need for you daily. Help us to to obey you joyfully uh, out of gratitude for all that you have done for us in Christ. May we never forget that we are safe and secure in you alone, Lord Jesus. May we go out into the world like Noah and proclaim righteousness, uh, preach righteousness, preach of salvation through you alone, Lord Jesus. Preach that there is no other way to enter into heaven but through the door the ark of our salvation. Lord, I pray um, this morning and throughout the week that we would be filled with all joy and peace in believing in light of all that you have done for us in the gospel. It's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.